0: not much more, really, you need to say after that, is there? A few tears. Well, our parable today, I'm sure you've all heard of it. Uh, I'd be surprised if any of you hadn't. It ranks alongside the Good Samaritan as one of Jesus' best-known and best-loved parables. I'm sure many of you would have heard this story uh, from childhood and we're all very familiar with its agricultural setting of fields and pigs and um, farmers. And we're all kind of comfortable with it because we all know where it's going. We all know the end of the story. And today I want to encourage you to see this story through a fresh set of eyes. And that's what that uh, little um, clip was designed to do to help you to consider this story through fresh eyes. The clip was um, taken from an adaptation of Philip Yancey's What's So Amazing About Grace. Let's just pray as we come to do that this morning. Father God, would you help us to do this this morning, to look anew at this ancient, but very much loved story that Jesus told By your spirit, would you open our eyes to see what you want us to see in it, to be challenged where we need to be challenged by it, and would you soften our hearts to receive your word today? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, our scripture today is quite long, so rather than read through the whole thing, we're just going to read it as we go. And we'll begin this morning where I always like to begin, with the parables. If they've got a context, it's always a good thing to start with that context. Um, A context is like a, a gift. And if you unwrap that gift, you're going to find something good inside. So if you've got your Bibles, would you turn please to Luke chapter 15, Our actual parable begins from verse 11, but what I want you to do is to just have a look and see if you can spot there what the context of this story is. Now, that's going to be easier for you if you've got a printed copy in front of you rather than a digital copy, and it's going to be even easier if your printed copy has the words of Jesus in red. Has anyone spotted the context? Sometimes you'll find the context immediately before the parable and sometimes you have to go a little further back to find it. And this is one such instance where you're going to have to go a little bit further back. If you keep going back to the beginning of chapter 15, so where all your red letters run out, if you've got a a red letter Bible, that's where we're going to start because that's where our context is. So reading from Luke 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. Now, the hymn, in this case is Jesus, and that sounds great, doesn't it? Jesus is drawing a crowd, and they're all coming to hear his message, but verse 2 tells us that not everyone was happy about this. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. Now, tax collectors, they were Jewish citizens, um, but they were Jewish citizens who were hated by their own people because they took advantage of the Roman occupation of Palestine and they used it for their own financial gain. So they would pay a fee, uh, almost like a franchisee fee, and that would give them the right to collect taxes from a certain area. And it would also buy them some protection from the Roman authorities in doing this. But often they would um, not only collect what they needed to collect but they would collect over and above what they needed to collect and they would you know, profit the difference for themselves. They ab- abused the privilege of being a Roman appointed tax collector and so they were lumped in to that general category with all the others as sinners and they were the undesirables of society. And now here was Jesus not only speaking with these people, not only teaching them, but he was welcoming them and even eating with them. These were the people of the land. Respectable Jewish teachers didn't mix with them. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were not happy about this, and so they made their feelings known. And so it's their offence and their anger at what Jesus was doing here that sets the context for our parable today. In response to their offence and their anger, Jesus tells three stories and they're all stories about lost things. So if you have a look there in chapter 15, first of all we have the story of the lost sheep. The sheep is lost, the shepherd goes and finds the sheep and then there's great joy and celebration in the finding. The second story is about a lady who loses one of her ten silver coins. She goes and searches She finds the lost coin, and then there's great joy and celebration in finding the coin. These are stories about something being lost and about being great joy in finding. Both of those stories are quite short. The third story, which is our passage for today, concerns a lost son and the great joy that the the father has when he returns. Now, this story is a little bit different from all the others, and if you have a look in your Bible, something obvious will strike you about it. It's about three times as long as the other two stories. So that's the first difference here. And we'll come back to these differences a little bit later, but for now, we're going to start digging into this parable. So we're reading from Luke 11 from verse 15. And it begins, Jesus continued. So that tells you this is linked to the other two stories. He's told the story of the lost sheep. He's told the story of the lost coin. And now he's going to continue. And he continues, there was a man who had two sons. And we need to pause at that point and give this verse its due. This is probably the most underestimated and overlooked verse in this whole story. Because right here in this first line, Jesus is telling us what this story is about. It's about a man and his two sons. There are three characters in this story. This is not a story about a son who comes home. It's a story about a man and two sons. All of the characters in this story have an important part to play. So on we go. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, you don't need to be any kind of expert in the culture of ancient Palestine to appreciate the enormity of what has just been said and what has been done in that one sentence. The son's request, give me a share of the estate, was outrageous back then and it is still outrageous today. Those of you who have adult children, Imagine one of them coming to you and saying, give me a share of the estate, or give me my share of the estate. Now, occasionally, there might be good reasons for them doing that. They might have a son or daughter of their own who's in need of expensive medical treatment. And so they might come and request a share of their estate. And most people, I think, would be very understanding and open about that. But there's no hint here that there are any such extenuating circumstances. There's no desperate need. This son just wants to get his hands on his share of the inheritance now so that he can go and live life his way how he wants to live it. He wants all of the good things that the father has to offer, but he wants them on his own terms, without the father's involvement. Now there's no hint anywhere in this story that the father is anything but a loving model father. Yet essentially what his son is really saying to him here is akin to, I wish you were dead. And then if we look at the response of the father, We're told simply, he divided his property between them. Now you tell me, is that a realistic response? Is that what you would do if one of your children came demanding their share of the estate? The demand is made, give me a share of the estate and you simply go about liquidating your assets to facilitate that happening. Of course, he wouldn't do that. No one would do that. And what we've got right here is our first clue in this story that this father is no ordinary father. He's not like most earthly fathers. And we're going to park that one for a little while, and we'll we'll come back to it later. So, having received what he asked for, the son departs, our scripture says. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. Now, no explainer would have been necessary here for the first hearers of this parable, as Jesus told it. They would know exactly what a distant country meant. A distant country meant a Gentile country. And you know what lives in Gentile countries? Gentile people. Unclean Gentile people. What a disgrace this young man has brought upon his family, not only asking for a share of this, his share of the estate, making a shameful request of his father, but then to go off and live with unclean people in an unclean land. This distant country is for him a place of rebellion and we all have those. It's the land of self-will, that part of us which is not fully surrendered to the Father God. What happens to him there? Well, we get half a sentence summary of his life in that distant land. There, he squandered his wealth on wild living. He loses a lot. And then, to make matters worse, after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the country. And he began to be in need. Surprise, surprise. So what did he do? He went and hired himself out a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. How the mighty have fallen. Here he is, longing to eat this unclean food, being fed to the most unclean of the unclean animals from a Jewish perspective, animals that belong to an unclean Gentile farmer living in the unclean land of the Gentiles. If ever there was an image to describe the absolute lowest point in life, this was it for a first century Jew. Now out in the fields he would have had plenty of time to reflect on life and hardship often has a way of bringing us to our senses. We can only suppose that he must have imagined how his brother was getting on back home, and perhaps he regretted his own decision to leave home. Most likely, he would have assumed that by now, his father would have performed the standard cutting off ceremony to formally sever ties with his rebellious son nonetheless scripture tells us that when he came to his senses he said how many of my father's hired men have food to spare and here i am starving to death i will set out and go back to my father and say to him father i have sinned against heaven and against you i am no longer worthy to be called your son Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. Now, evidently, the father had not performed the cutting-off ceremony. Rather, it seems far more likely that he'd never given up hope that his rebellious son would one day return to him as he gazed into the distance, hoping to catch a glimpse of him coming toward him. And then one day, there he is. The father sees him in the distance and he's filled with great compassion, so much so that all sense of dignity is tossed aside as he runs to greet this son who has returned to him. Now, no older Jewish man would be seen doing this in public. No older Jewish man would run in public. But this particular father, at this particular moment, doesn't care about protocol. He's been waiting for his son to come home, and now here he is. So he goes out running to him with arms outstretched to greet and to embrace him. And the son hasn't even got started on his well-rehearsed speech when he feels the embrace of his father's arms around him and the warmth of a reconciliatory kiss. So in quick succession, the best robe is brought out for the son. Most likely, it was the father's own robe. There's no waiting here to determine whether this change in him is going to last. He's simply accepted as he is, and he's clothed as a son in the father's own robe. A signet ring, symbolic of family ties, is placed over a finger that had not long been feeding the most unclean of unclean animals. Sandals are put on his feet, to declare that he is no longer a barefooted slave but he's once again within the family and a beloved son. And then the fatted calf is killed, there's feasting and celebration and such is the great joy of the father that this son who was once dead and lost to him is alive and very much found. Now, we break briefly here for a quick one-question quiz. This parable is known to most of us as the parable of the prodigal son. Why do you think it's called that? Do you think, A, it's called that because the son was so bold as to ask for his share of the estate? Is it called that because the son eventually came to his senses? Is it called that because the son was extravagant with his share of the inheritance? Is it called that because the son returned to the father after a long period of rebellion? Or is it called that because the son was willing to be an employee of the father? What do you think? Well, I'll give you a clue. The word prodigal does not describe one who returns home after a period of rebellion. That's how we've come to use the word, that's not what it means. Prodigal actually means reckless or extravagant or lavish or unsparing or generous. Prodigal is a description of how the son spent the money that he was given as his share of the estate. But I think it's a better description of the father. It's a far better description of how the father behaved to his sons. Don't forget Jesus' opening words of this parable. There was a man who had two sons. So this then is not so much the story of a prodigal son who returned home as it is the story of a prodigal father who was reckless and extravagant and unsparing in his love for two rebellious sons. We often focus so much on the grace directed by the father towards the younger son that we forget that there's a second son in this story. And the second son is important. In fact, he's critical to the story. He's the reason for the story. And this is where context becomes crucial in our understanding of this particular parable. Why was Jesus telling it in the first place? Remember, it was in response to the muttering and complaining of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law about him when they said, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. So in response, Jesus told those three stories about three lost things and the very great joy in finding them. He began... The story of the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to find and bring back the one lost sheep. When he does, he's so filled with joy that he calls all his friends and his neighbours together to celebrate. Now, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law aren't getting it at this point. So Jesus tells them a second story, this time of a lost coin. And the woman who put all her efforts into finding that one lost coin and when she found it, she calls her friends and neighbours together to celebrate. Still, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law aren't getting it. So Jesus tells a third story and that's our story for today. Another story of a lost thing and this time it's a lost son, but this story is different to the others because, as I said, it's noticeably longer than the other stories. In it, Jesus provides a lot more detail about the thing which was lost, the son, a beloved son. And he also provides a lot more detail about the one celebrating, the father. He's a man. He's a good man, a good father, who welcomes home a sinful son and not only eats with him, but he kills the fattened calf to celebrate with him. This man, then, is the epitome of what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were complaining about, one who welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then, maybe just in case the Pharisees are still not getting it at this point, Jesus introduces another character into the story, the older brother. Now, he's the one who's never made any demands at all of the father. He's the one who's remained at home, dutifully toiling away in the fields, quite possibly shouldering extra duties when the younger son's gone off to enjoy himself. He's the one who for all intents and purposes appears to be doing the right thing. But instead of rejoicing that his brothers come to his senses and returned home, the older brother becomes very angry and he refuses to join in the celebrating. Notice what the father does here. He goes out to the older son and he pleads with him. The older son moans about how he slaved away for the father and about how in spite of his constant obedience, no lavish party has ever been thrown for him. Notice the liberty that he takes with his words. When the estate was divided at the younger son's request, as the older son this one would have inherited the double portion. Two-thirds of the property was his. Younger son might have turned his back on his father, but older son certainly wasn't performing any labour of love here because those fields that he was working, well, they were actually his. They were in trust from the father, but there was no sense of gratitude in his heart for what the father had done for him. In his mind, he deserved the love of his father. He'd earned it based on his faithfulness and on his hard work. And that sort of attitude put him just as much in a distant country as what the younger son was. He might never have left the family farm and as outsiders looking in on him might have seen that he appeared to have been the more faithful and the more loving of the father's sons but he was just as lost as the other one was. His attitude made him proud and angry and resentful and judgmental. Notice nowhere in this parable, nowhere else, is there any indication that the youngest son blew his money on prostitutes? The older son is passing judgment here on his own brother, and he disowns him by the use of the words, this son of yours. The older son was not pleased one little bit with the extravagant grace that his father had lavished on his younger brother. And nor was he able to appreciate that same grace in his own life. Such was his self righteousness. Can you see who the older son represents in this story? He's a vital part of this story, and he's a vital part in addressing that context because he represents the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And as such, older son could just as easily be any of us. My son, says the father, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You can hear the heart of the father in what he's just said there his heart for the lost and his deep desire for the older brother to share that same heart that he has for the lost. This then is the parable that Jesus told to defend his own actions of welcoming sinners and eating with them. It's the story of the prodigal father and his two rebellious sons. Now, we're not told whether the Pharisees and the teachers of the law ever understood this parable. Nor are we ever told how the story turns out. Did the younger son stay genuine in his repentance? Did he remain loyal to his father? Did the older son ever join in the celebrations? Or would he, in his own self-righteousness, remain in his own distant land? Would he remain separated from the heart of the Father, even though he had never actually left home? It is, I believe, a deliberately ambiguous ending because each of us will be able to identify in one way or another with one of the two sons in this story. And all of us must seek to emulate the example of the father. If there is some area in your life in which you need to repent and return to the father, then this one here is the image that you need to go away having it burnt into your mind, The father's arms outstretched in joy running towards you. Or perhaps that family that we saw in the video clip standing with their welcome home sign at the bus stop. By the way, this is the only place in the entire Bible in which God is pictured running. And where's he running to? He's running... Towards the repentant sinner who wants to come home. If that's you, then feel his embrace, wear the signet ring with pride, allow yourself to be dressed in his robe of righteousness and be a slave to sin no more. If you're perhaps more prone to self-righteous rants against sinners than you are welcoming them and eating with them, then like Jesus did, then there's a different image that you need to take away. You need to take away this one today, burnt into your mind. It's the image of the father, arm around the shoulder of the older son, pleading with him to come and welcome his brother home pleading with him to come and share his heart for the lost. That's the image that you should take with you today. Both sons were sinful, but the father had sufficient grace for them both. We're going to bring our time together this morning to a close, singing about that grace. MJ and team are going to lead us in a song, Outrageous Grace.
1: Let us all stand.
2: There's a lot of pain
1: A lot more healing There's a lot of trouble But a lot more peace There's a lot of hate But a lot more loving There's a lot of sin but a lot more grace there's a lot of pain but a lot more healing there's a lot of trouble but a lot more pain there's a lot of pain but a lot more loving, there's a lot of sin, but a lot more great. Oh,
2: outrageous grace, oh, outrageous grace, love and faith.
1: there's a lot of fear but a lot more freedom there's a lot of darkness but a lot more life there's a lot of cloud but a lot more vision this love perishing, perishing for the Lamb of life. Oh,
2: outrageous grace, oh, outrageous grace, love unfold.
1: There's a lot of trouble, but a lot more peace. There's a lot of hate, but a lot more loving. There's a lot of sin, but a lot more grace. Oh, I'll raise
2: Grace. Oh, our rage is no one
0: you this week, may you know yourself to be one of God's beloved children. May you understand that no place could be so distant that you could not come home to him. May you long to share the father's prodigal heart and may he grant you day by day that ability to love each each other recklessly, without holding back, extravagantly and unsparingly, I mean.